whenever my world falls apart I never lose hope or lose heart Whatever the form of the storm that may brew Not with you to lean on, darlings, you Hello and welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. My guest today is the president and CEO of Washington Performing Arts. It's Jenny Billfield, everybody. Hey. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm great. great. Thanks for having me. Thanks thank for you having for, me. Thank you for being had. Wonderful to speak speak with you and, and learn all about the wonderful things you're doing over at uh, Washington Performing Arts. But before we get into any of that, you're here to talk about... Hedwig and the Angry Inch. My sex change operation got botched. My guardian angel fell asleep on the watch. Now all I've got is a Bobby doll crotch. I've got an angry inch. How did Hedwig and the Angry Inch come into your life? Hedwig is a, is a very special and very personal piece. I, you know, I lived in New York for many years. I'm a New Yorker. And, you know, living in New York in the 80s and 90s, you hear about various works that kind of filter through development and popping up in little sort of out of the way um, theaters. And my husband, who's composer and also musical theater person, mm. and I were really interested in this Hedwig piece. Um, honestly, what we had heard is that it had developed in all sorts of clubs and sort of um, a- outside of the kind of typical theater sort of route of development, and that it was a really audacious work. It was rock. It was, you know, people were trying to describe it to us. It's a little bit like Tommy, but it's also, you know, very um, sort of sexy and risque and all of this. So, of course, it piqued our interest. And we found ourselves going to, I guess it must have been like all the way on the west side on Jane Street, kind of around West Beth, maybe. We, I can't remember mm-hmm. exactly the theater, tiny theater with one of the most sensational performers we have ever seen in our lives. And our hair was like blown back off our faces. Like it was just such a compelling performance. And the piece it, the, the way people had described it to us was was incredibly reductive. You know, they described mm. the performer, they described a little bit, and he's gay and he's cast. I mean, they people struggled for the words because, you know, this is the 90s and mm-hmm. we're not talking as much about, you know, trans um, society. And um, so Hedwig was really, the piece itself felt very fringe mm-hmm. and Hedwig as the character was very much of an outsider. And the vocabulary wasn't there either musically as much, at least not within the theater world. Mm-hmm. Um, and the character as well and the complexity of the character. And, you know, it wasn't that long after the wall fell um, in Germany. And so there were a lot of really interesting contours that kind of blasted us uh, that night. And from that point forward, I just, I tried to see as many Hedwig films, shows, mm-hmm. Uh, listen to the covers. And in fact, I was um, running a music publisher at that time, Boozy Mm. and Hawks. And I became interested in the writers as creators thinking, oh my gosh, Mm. this work has to be out and about in the world. Like who is publishing this piece? So it became a little bit of a, of a fixation for me. It's, it's really, you bring up an interesting point that I hadn't thought of before that this is such a 
I mean, it is the late 90s. You know, it's 98, I think, is when this debuts off Broadway. But like you said, it was playing around New York before that. Um, and Rent had come in and given us kind of a taste of a 90s rock musical, like what that would be. Mm-hmm. But this was so much past that in terms yes. of music and in terms of character and in terms of, I mean, it was a really a huge leap. And it's interesting that the descriptions are of it at the time would have been very reductive. And I, I sort of remember my first description of it. Like somebody told me what I said, what's that about? And they're like, Oh, it's a rock musical about this, this woman who had a sex change operation and it, it went very badly. And that was all I got. And I went, Oh, okay. Well that's, I mean, <laughs> That's interesting. You know what I mean? Like, that's an interesting idea for a show. But it's it's about that's certainly a component, but it's about so much. And this little what I had forgotten about kind of and uh, listening to it again to talk to you is how much the Berlin Wall aspect of it really comes into the show that it is. This is a character from from East Berlin or from East Germany, certainly. And that whole concept of the wall as a division, you know, between people and then ties into obviously origin of love and it ties into everything. Yeah. becomes a huge metaphor. And, but as the Berlin wall fades from people's memories, I wonder how much that like that works for people that, that sort of like lives for people because I clearly remember the, I remember the Berlin wall coming down very clearly, Sure, but you know, for my, for even people, you know, five years younger than me, it would have been pretty much just a just a memory. And it would have been, you know, only, you know, nine years removed when the show debuted off Broadway. Right. So it was very oh. fresh in everyone's mind. And it's not exactly the same, but, you know, we have the wall of Mexico. We have, you know, sure. walls. We have metaphorical walls. And, mm-hmm. oh, of course, um, you know, as as Hedwig is divided and, you know, through politics, through geography, through emotion, sexuality. Um, from the self, from partner. I mean, there are so many, you know, fascinating points. But uh, yeah, it, it's very interesting with the Berlin Wall being feeling so far in the past, and yet what Hedwig is experiencing is so very real and present. And now we we have a vocabulary to imagine. But you know, even thinking about you know the references to Plato, mm-hmm. um, like the it's it's an incredibly poetic, um, a poetic show i mean emotionally very deep and poetic but also just the the language that um john cameron mitchell uses to describe and and to to tease these really emotional contours out of all of the characters um and using rock music in its grittiest or most romantic or you know there we'll get to the music i'm sure but sure. but his vocabulary is not static um, so it's, yeah, it, it, it's filled with layers and layers and layers of humanity and history and politics and gender and all of that. It's just timeless, really. It really is. And and I think it achieved uh, one thing that I think that is very true of, of all timeless pieces of art is how tied they are ironically to the time in which they're created. And there's something about the, th- like the specificity of that plus the timelessness of the theme creates this piece of art that just can live in any area, even though, as you say, it is very tied to night, like the, the mid to late nineties to me in terms of music and in terms of, you know, being obviously about the character who 
lived in East Germany. And so like that's, you know, that immediately landlocks you to a certain period of time. Yeah, um, yeah. I wonder, actually, you just uh, let's talk about the music a little bit, because I think that when um, I had uh, Joe Iconis on the show, we were we did uh, the best little whorehouse in Texas. And when we talked about that, one of the things we talked about was how hard it is for Broadway you know, style musicals, let's just say musical theater in general, to write authentic country and or rock and or disco, you know, any any genre music. There, There's always this. You know, you'll see a lot of like country musicals or rock musicals where it's really just still a pretty standard musical theater song. They just put an electric guitar or a banjo on it and and then say, oh, that's a rock song or that's a thing. And right. this is not that these this is a real rock score. <laughs> these are songs yeah. that would have been right at home on on the radio and, you know, in college radio in the, in the mid to late mid to late 90s. And I wonder if someone who worked in publishing at the time, what your experience would have been with that kind of what you think first of all what you just think of that in general if that's a, an accurate uh, assertion and then either way what were you seeing at the time in, in music publishing in the you know mid to late 90s well you know it, it, it's interesting because i think that the origin of it felt so incredibly dynamic in terms of who it could reach and how it could engage people and i was really drawn you know i'm, I'm a composer by training mm-hmm. and so the ability to tell a story in this way felt just mind-blowingly creative um, but, you know, at the time, the, the publishing company that I was working for, it's Boozy and Hawks, we published Bernstein's music. Mm. And think about, you know, West Side Story and how audacious um, that score was in the mm. time that it was written. And, you know, the music of Stravinsky, we also published Bartok, Aaron Copeland. And so there was a, a legacy of representing composers who had been real pioneers mm. in how they had imagined the world around them and synthesized um, social and political and musical currents. And that's kind of what I felt with with Hedwig. So I went on that little expedition. And I think what finally led me, I think it was to to um I think I spoke with John Cameron Mitchell, but I basically went to the to the white pages and looked for his phone number because I couldn't figure it out. <laughs> oh, those were the days. It. And, and yeah. he called me back and I, I I think he said, you know, that the 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 music was already published or something like that. Mm. But there weren't vocal scores. This was before it was a movie, before it mm-hmm. went to Broadway and all that. So it seemed to be locked up. And I felt this sense of both, you know, damn, I missed it, but also, you know, good for them for taking mm-hmm. care of their business. Um, you know, the 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 question of how art reaches people and also the, the bridges between the kind of scholarly music, the uptown music in New York, the downtown music in New York, that was beginning to um, to fade. And there was a real kind of curiosity about new styles that had been led, I think, by a lot of, quote, downtown composers, um, the Steve Reich, uh, John Adams, well, West Coast downtown, um, and the class, and the sense that, so people could actually say, I listened to rock music and I got a PhD from Yale. You can say those things in one sentence. My husband as a composer wrote a piece that was off Broadway, but he was told he needed to change his name if he wanted to write musical theater because the classical music world would never accept that. And, mm. you know, I, we so we saw, we observed this transition in the field where it actually became kind of a badge of expansion and honor to be able to say, you know, I am influenced by the music of my time and the music of the past that inspires that work. Um, and I, I think that that's really thrilling and exciting. You know, as a 
as a young composer, I felt this sense of divide between my sort of classical side and my, you know, disco and prog rock concept album side. I, I would listen to like the music of George Crumb and Stravinsky mm-hmm. and um, John Cage. And then I'd want to dance. So I'd listen to Michael Jackson and the Bee Gees. Mm-hmm. And then I'd sit down with an Emerson, Lake and Palmer album and King Crimson and Queen. And I would love these expanded forms, you know, sort of the rock version of the ring cycle, I guess, mm-hmm. maybe. Sure. Shorter. So I was always trying to reconcile these different sides of my own musical language. And the the camps that I was in academically felt certain that I was misguided when I would do that detour to musical theater or to rock. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not one to sort of fit in a box. So I just sort of did it and pulled it together really comfortably. So I still listen to that music. And that's why I love Hedwig so much the the, you know, the grind of the music and the elegance of the music. Um, and we can hold all those thoughts together today, which I think is a really good thing. Yeah, it, it, it certainly I would I would agree is is a little more free today, though those walls and camps still do exist and they, they get kind of more oddly specific. I think there's a sort of like, you know, you get to sort of arguments between serious musical theater and silly right. musical, you know, which is all just nonsense. But it is it's funny how you people still need to define themselves yeah. in little in little areas. Um which is a whole, I mean, the psychology of that could fill, yes, could fill the book. And yes, <laughs> just very, but so you say you were a composer by, by trade. I read on in your bio, you wrote your, your first piece when you were uh, 10 years old or so. Yeah. Uh, w- uh, when you were studying composition, was this sort of experimentation with a lot of different forms encouraged or were you, were, the, were you lucky enough to have teachers like that? Or was it a little more stringent and you kind of had to break out as you got a little bit older? Um, I had a I had a teacher at Manhattan School of Music Prep who was really excellent and and like opened my uh, my ears really widely. Um, he just kept throwing new sounds at me, and you know he encouraged me to find what resonated and to sort of follow that impulse. I mean, we didn't listen to as much rock or musical theater, but in terms of other music, I was listening to really abstract atonal music mm-hmm. and very lyrical music. And he just wanted to throw stuff at me to, you know, get the visceral reactions going. But my parents, my mother especially, took me to a lot of different types of, um, to hear a lot of different types of music. So we went to hear gospel music in gospel churches, um, in up in um, in churches that had uh, uh, worship services where gospel music was sung. To be more correct about it. Um, and I always, it's funny because I would walk into one of these experiences and I would think I was going to a gospel concert. I was sort of less aware that it was a um, a church service mm-hmm. where gospel music was sung. So I'm still, you know, still wired as a composer, but we went to church basements to hear music. We went to restaurants um, that had performers that were very culturally specific to the cuisine we were eating um, because you wouldn't hear a lot of global music at Mm -hmm. venues at the time that I was growing up. It just wasn't, didn't happen. Um, So, you know, my teachers though, while they encouraged art song, did not encourage like deep study of musical theater. There were no musical theater classes when I went to college. Um, Certainly no popular music classes when I went to college. Um, So that was what I gleaned kind of on the side around, you know, the dark alley. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. 
Yeah, I know. Getting those bootleg LPs, right? Of original cast recordings. Yep. Uh, it's so funny that 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 attitude persists. I mean, especially when you mentioned Leonard Bernstein, and I don't think there's anybody who did as much for musical education and, and the blending of, you know, saying, yes, you can appreciate classical music, but also to you classical music fans, listen to all this pop music. And like he's famous for these television broadcasts he did of you know, praising yes. the Beatles and all kinds of pop music in the 60s and saying like, this stuff's interesting and you should listen to it. And I and also writing, as you say, West Side Story and Candide and, and doing a lot of music theater work. And I don't think anyone would knock his classical music uh, right. credentials. So what and actually, this is a tangent in this for a second. What do you think it was about Bernstein that let him get away with that sort of differently <laughs> than, than somebody like your husband who would have to change his name to, to write a music theater show before he could go back right. to the classical well, world? You know, the thing is, Bernstein never won a Pulitzer Prize. So mm. you know, establishment did get back at him for, yeah. or, or for straying. And there you know, were people who felt he wasn't a good enough classical composer you know he might have been a great conductor and educator but mm. you know question mark around his own composition so we heard that a lot you know mm. and, I, and i think that's a lot of sour grapes because there was such incredible discomfort that someone could straddle um so eloquently but frankly he was at a level of fame and visibility and success that he was you know virtually untouchable i mean mm. i but i do think that there was a lot a lot of tilting at him because he was, he was so independent mm. and was not beholden. Um, and the fact that, you know, West Side Story especially had such a swell of appreciation that you, you couldn't, you couldn't, you know, unring that bell. Mm. Um, but, you know, the, the, there is that kind of sour side of all facets of our field, as you point out, you know, the, there are people who worship Sondheim and people who, don't I think the people who don't are crazy? That's that's not a opinion. <laughs> that's fact. Yeah, Sondheim is great, but mm. Sondheim is operatic as a as a musical theater composer, and the mm. complexity of his work is just is stunning and surpasses a lot of you know quote serious concert music that's written. So I think when we look objectively at the quality of the music, the intricacy of the music, the intricacy of the storytelling. Um, you know the 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 contours of the story of Hedwig would be um, ripe for any you know sophisticated opera. I think it's mm -hmm. just it's the musical language, but not the inherent qualities of the storytelling that um, maybe put it in one camp versus another. Yeah, it's an incredibly dramatic, so almost melodramatic in the classical sense kind of story. Like it has a very yeah. intense. Uh, relationship among the characters and, and among the, the sort of dramatic irony uh, contained within. And it is also, it's, it's an interesting in the construction. I always find when I'm following along on one of the recordings, how it, it, it is sort of, so, sort of constructed like a tragedy, but the tragedy of it kind of, it kind of breaks very early the tragedy like the the tragedy kind of bottoms out sort of before the story even begun and and it, it, it is Hedwig is catching us up on the tragic things that have happened but they have pretty much already happened like they're all right. they're all in the, and we're just we're getting caught up to the present when we have this explosion with obviously with Tom the character of Tominosis and 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 then this catharsis where where Hedwig can be 
fully herself at the end right. of the, of the, I think them, I think Hedwig would, would use them, they pronouns possibly in, in yes. the day, yes. uh, but we'll stick with, with her and she, cause that's what she uses in, in the story. Uh, but it is this real, you know, the, the, the really interesting, like you say, intricate construction of what is basically one of the oldest kind of musical and musical theater tricks in that sense of just like it's we are ostensibly watching a concert happen live in front of us and everything you're watching is just happening in front of you and it's 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 in real time aristotelian you know it's straight there it's, it's just happening and but through that very simple old form john cameron mitchell and stephen trask kind of lure you into this false sense of security <laughs> like you know right. what's gonna happen and right. then somewhere in the middle they just turn the whole thing inside and you just are completely are completely lost it's so and wonderful I, I felt that more with the broadway production than i did in the original one mm. i'm not sure why i mean the, in, a, in a sense the broadway production was more complex to, to kind of keep track of maybe because there were many more things going on as opposed mm-hmm. to a little bigger that we saw it in and maybe it was just that i was so mesmerized by the character that was unfolding mm. in front of us that it became it was easier to sort of like to be on that ride versus seeing the spectacle of the broadway show well and they really did for the bro i mean it's so funny because it, obviously it's written to be more of a, a small theater piece it's written as an off-broadway piece um and you know you're sensibly watching a live club show somewhere in right. downtown New York. And right. when they took it to Broadway, I think one of the smartest things they did was decide to address head on the fact that Hedwig was playing in a Broadway house and yes, how in the world right. that would be possible. And setting it on the the stage of was it the Hurt Locker musical? Right, um, right. Is just such a wonderful. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that from a writing standpoint, that they were just like, no, we have to we have to address this. It's central because it shows that central to this experience is the fact that it is happening live in front of you. Right. It is really, you know, you are one on one interacting with Hedwig and Hedwig is going to have these this emotional catharsis in front of you for the very first time. This is there's no trying to break, you know, that Thornton Wilder way, trying to break down the fourth wall as much as possible right. and suck you in and. I will be on. That's really when I started to really love Hedwig myself. It was a show that I had enjoyed, but it never really spoke to me. And it wasn't really when I saw that, you know, what they had done with it for Broadway. I was like, oh, that's really, really smart. Like they really, so I don't know what it was, something about it just really made me go, gosh, this is great. Like, well, really, it's also really the, the cheesy stand up. I mean, the cheesy mm-hmm. stand up too, yeah. where you know, all the double entendre and, and the the kind of playful and the ribbing, and you sort of don't know. For someone who who doesn't know the show, mm. it's really disorienting because you're right. I mean, it's breaking down every wall. And, you know, who is this character? What are they doing to the people around them? And is that a man or a woman playing guitar in the background and this char- this sort of trapped, uh, skittish character? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's just very like getting your bearings when they're as you're, you're right, you're just you land in the middle of the story. And also really, again, for a show that's about identity on a very, very basic level, putting as many again, we'll just stick with the metaphor walls between Hedwig's. You see all the walls that Hedwig constructs between herself and literally everybody in her life. And slowly through the course of the show, those walls are destroyed by and really a brave thing i think and and i wonder if you agree with this in terms of 
a smart thing to do with character. I, I think one of the smartest things about it, and one thing I always try to tell my students when we're working on writing is that you have to let your characters be bad people sometimes mm -hmm. or make the wrong decisions. I mean, there's a credibly dramatic situation. I think it's much more explicit in the film, probably, where Hedwig rips up Yitzhak's uh, passport. And it's this terrible, terrible violation in this moment. And it's awful. And you hate watching her do it. And you hate that she hate her for doing it. Like you just you yeah. hate everything about it. But without that terrible low moment, we can't have the grand trans. Like the ending has much less meaning if 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 you know Hedwig's just nice all the time to to the to the people. You know, right, right. Yeah. And, may, and maybe we understand the sort of implications of trauma. That trauma mm -hmm. doesn't stop with the traumatized person. It continues to manifest in other people in their life. And I'm not sure that we were prepared to accept that possibility as uniformly as a society that yes, you're right. I mean, this is about the character inflicting their fears and abuse upon other people. And the, the sweet part is in the redemption mm -hmm. and, and, and the, the self-awareness and the, and the forgiveness at the end. But, but it is, it is brutal in that way. And, but you, you see it passed on the brutality of, you know, Hedwig being mutilated, essentially. I yeah. you know, it's interesting because as I've sort of followed the writing on it a little bit, there that moment in Hedwig's life is described as gender reassignment mm -hmm. or exchange, but it it really was a mutilation. Yeah. You know, like you have to it, it was intended to achieve that, you know, to to make Hedwig into uh to appear a woman, but it was a brutal mutilation, whereas gender reassignment has a, a slightly more positive and intentional um, uh, trajectory to it. Well, and consent. I mean, is the other sort of large thing that's missing at the beginning of the story yes. is is that we never we never really hear about. Again, in the movie, it's a little more explicit, but you never really hear about what young Hedwig thought about this exactly. But you sort of get the feeling. I mean, she was very young. I don't remember, 16 or a 17. I don't know how right. old, like, you know, right. and, and it's just, and her mother just sort of sold her down the river for this, you know, prospect to, I mean, you could argue That's to get, true. to get her out yeah. of East Germany. And that like, there was some, there was some quote unquote noble intent there, but certainly not a lot of thought was put into it from the mother's standpoint. Uh, and obviously not a lot of care in selecting the doctor, not that they would have had, you know, a lot of choices probably right. but yeah it's a it, it is really it's a it's a it's a really interesting show in the way that it presents very dark terrible material like you say but in this beautiful big blonde colorful package that sort of it takes you a little while i wonder what would how long it took you because for me as a listener it takes a few listens to be like Wait, what happened exactly? Like you sort of clue it. How when so when you're watching it or when you saw it for that first time, was it a little more immediate or did it like did you sort of like you're coasting along with the show and then you sort of realize oh wait this was terrible like I, you sort of didn't quite realize. Well, I was. I mean, first of all, I was you know horrified. I, what I thought I was hearing mm -hmm. horrified me because you know I I I don't know what I perceived about what the angry inch was. I thought it was going mm. to be. A very different, a very different piece, and then understanding what had happened, and that 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 the first that the opening song is like the incredible channeling of this anger, mm -hmm. and 
you know, like that's what a lot of rock music is. I mean, this was visceral, what it sounded like to be violated. Mm-hmm. And it's it's rare to hear something that is so raw and visceral and yet um, so beautiful. So, it, you know, mm-hmm. as soon as there was a recording that I could listen to and you know, go back over the songs. I actually listen to this to this album whenever I have like a long drive. I listen to this and I listen mm. to um, a couple of other albums. I listen to Night at the Opera by Queen. and Very nice choice. Right. And I listen to Meatloaf, Bat Out of Hell. And I think Meatloaf and Meatloaf was one of my childhood favorites. And, mm-hmm. and you know, Hedwig and Meatloaf, there's kind of, you know, mm-hmm. an interesting pairing in terms of the, the, the range of emotion in the songs. And mm-hmm. The, the sound and the wildness. Yes. And so, yeah, the sort of uncontrollable relief, whatever you want to call it for that kind yeah. of, yeah. Oh, I think those are good. That's, that's a good triple feature. You found yourself right there. In terms <laughs> yeah, of, especially especially in terms of lead vocalists, like you really can't get, you know, you get Hedwig, Freddie Mercury and meatloaf. I think that's a pretty right. great, that's a pretty <laughs> great combination uh, with some Roger Taylor and Brian may thrown in for good measure right. here and there. Uh, who's in love with his car. But uh, the yeah, I'm really it, it's so interesting hearing about like sort of because when you were so in the, in the in the mid to late 90s, when you saw this, you found you were hearing about it. You saw it. Were you seeing a lot of, you know, quote unquote, downtown theater at the time? Was that something you sought out or was it what, what were you what were you, what were you seeing? Um, probably more downtown music. Mm-hmm. I mean, a little, a little bit of downtown theater. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the occasional Carol Churchill play. But my. Sure my world was so much about music in every nook and cranny of the city. So I, but, but also, you know, as composers were using more narrative and doing more collaboration as opposed to just, you know, writing for an ensemble, but beginning to use video and beginning to work with a director and thinking about how their music was presented. Um, Saw more uh, sort of raw attempts to fuse different styles together and collaborate with people who weren't just doing their bidding, but actually creating new work together and that felt like a really um dynamic direction and even if the composers weren't yet aware of it they were probably thinking more about musical theater than they were about opera because they were thinking about smaller forms and more infused with theater than let's say bel canto opera which just didn't seem relevant um in so many ways so i saw this as as kind of a um that time is a, a time of creative, um, like a creative incubator time of transition. And also, you know, more technology available and more people who were younger coming out of rock music, you know, playing in rock music programs in their high schools and a lot less um, sort of bifurcation of these different styles in, you know, in their studies. And then they they show up at a university. The university is like, no, you have to forget the side of you. Mm-hmm. And perhaps a generation with much more agency to say, no, 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 we're we're actually here to, you know, bring all the sides of us together, not simply to let leave something at the door and listen to this anew. So there were, I think there were shifts in a lot of different directions. And also, frankly, it was it was a time when the self-powered um musicians, composer collectives were really at an all-time high, whether it was Bang on a Can, Philip Glass Ensemble, Steve Reich, musicians. Um, people who were not welcomed by quote the establishment were right were creating their own bands and their own bands involved like electrical current 
mm-hmm. not just acoustic instruments. And when you have those that electrical current, you you create different sounds. So you have a mixing station because you have to manage the sound in the spaces. And all of a sudden it starts to look like and sound like something that needs a different acoustic, a different experience. The Kronos Quartet, you know, is revolutionizing and well, you know, before then revolutionizing concert experiences. So it's actually not that many steps to get to kind of radical, you know, rock infused music and, um, and musical theater. But I, I can sort of see the the steps towards it as people transition away from one structure, create their own, and then enter a whole other world that technology helps supports helps to support. So, um, you know, in retrospect, it makes sense, but at the time, it felt pretty audacious. And you know, it, when I told people, you know, in my musical circles that we had gone to see Hedwig and the Angry Inch, or even that we went to see musical theater, it was still like, really, you like that, or hmm. you know dance party you really you like that huh you like to dance that's interesting now of course you know we all like to dance and mm-hmm. we're all listening to whatever music we're listening to and dancing but but there was a real discomfort and and there was also a consequence for a lot of composers who admitted this because you know either you're 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 one of us or you're not one of us so the messages from teachers were very clear like this is you know this is your lineage and you know, we expect you to to toe the line. So I suspect that's very much the way in, you know, every other art form. But at a certain point, you 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 lose control of that. There's a great moment I think about all the time. I don't know, have you ever seen the movie Strictly Ballroom? Baz Luhrmann's Yes, Ballroom? oh, a long time ago, but yes. There's a great moment. It kind of whizzes past. Uh, but when you've seen it as much as I have, it's one of my wife's all-time favorite movies. We watch it every, every couple of years uh, without fail. And there's a great line where, you know, it's basically a very typical sort of uh, story of, of romance and uh, and dance. And there's this sort of character who's doing their own steps. And this is causing yeah. a lot of strife. But one of the characters it took me a couple of watchings to find this, maybe because of the heavy Australian accents. But um, one of the, the sort of chief bad guy in the movie expresses this opinion that, like, listen, if they're doing their own, if you can't, if they're just making up their own steps, then we can't teach them. And if we can't teach them, then we're all out of business. Yes. And right. I think about that a lot when I butt up against art educators, uh, as I as I do, um, and uh, the sort of stolid attitude of the academy that it feels uh, part partially. It always feels like I think on their best side, academics are are feel they are uh, guardians of the flame, and they are mm-hmm. protecting this knowledge and this form and this art that they've dedicated their lives to. And they, one of the reasons they don't want you getting all muddled into the other stuff is they want to make sure that this thing that they have isn't subsumed by the popular culture. That's the best part, but the worst part (laughs) is the feeling that like they just, people find things that are new scary because then they'd have to learn something else. And that that's not what they've decided to do. They've decided to do to teach this and, you know, the art froze in whatever year they decide. And that's just sort of how we're going to go forward. And there's danger of it on all sides. I mean, I, I, not to say that, you know, we're living in some kind of enlightened period. Now I'm imagining in 20 years, people saying that musical theater died when Stephen Sondheim did. And it certainly isn't true. And I don't think he would agree, would agree with that if we could find him and get in touch with him. Um, that, you know, any any sort of reverence on that level is unhealthy um, and counterproductive and also not what the artist you're worshiping 
was doing they were trying to break the mold at the time yes. people thought they were too far out and that they were you know not great i mean mozart famously not very popular in his lifetime <laughs> it's not you know this isn't <laughs> these things aren't new and it's so funny we're living in this kind of odd cycle when you live in the arts and this sort of thing yeah and and it is part of a continuum you know and i, mm-hmm. I think that you know the i think about friends who are dancers and and, and the ones who no matter how um, contemporary their work is, whether they're doing hip hop or they're doing modern dance, so many of them refer to the good technique and posture they develop by studying ballet. It doesn't mean that they're going to be ballet stars, mm-hmm. but they but they do appreciate the knowledge of where they are in this continuum, and their goal is to push. And we 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 struggle as a society between, you know, preserving the past, as you're saying, and and innovating and this discomfort that it's a binary issue. It's not a binary issue. We sort mm-hmm. of are an assimilation of all the different influences um, in our heads. And I, you know, that was something that I wrestled with as I was, um, you know, starting my career, as I was studying music, that I could listen to Stravinsky and to Michael Jackson and love both in different ways. And that was just who I was. Mm-hmm. And and I think that people people are you know, encouraged now to to open their receptors in every direction. But that's, you know, in the grand scheme of things, a, a little bit newer in our, mm-hmm. you know, a century at least. Yeah, um, I would agree. It, 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 I think if you go back and you look at any, especially musical artist who you enjoy, especially bands, like I think one of the great things about Queen and yeah. the Beatles, of course, and, and other great bands is the variety of influences that each of the individual members brings to the group. And it's the diversity that creates an album that you want to listen to. I mean, we, we talk, you talk about night at the opera that has music hall and it has sort of old, you know, like sort of banjo style, you know, music. And then it also has very hard rock and it has experimental kind of things like the prophet song. I don't know what you call that really, but it's a whole, and of course, it all culminates with a song everybody knows, Bohemian Rhapsody, which is one of the most experimental pop songs yes. ever written. Yes. By, yes. But then, interestingly, I want to point out to all my listeners who maybe haven't heard a night at the opera that it's not the last song. The last song is "God Save the Queen," and the oh, right. most traditional British song in the entire world closes that album. And so it is. It's all, but it's all that. It's it's you know it's the 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 whole being greater than the sum of its parts. You know, all those artists are great individually, but when you bring them all together, you know, all four of those guys in Queen, and then they make an album. Like that's the thing we really want to listen to, right? And that's the, I think that's the experience with all with 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 anything you enjoy. If you really look at it, you'd be like, oh, look, they're they're drawing from all different kinds of experiences and putting them together uh, into a, a different package, and that's what sort of creative aspects are um which segues nicely uh into talking about a little bit about washington performing arts uh because as it says right there on your mission statement you champion arts as a unifying force and that is exactly what we're talking about um but i'll ask before we get deep into that at, at all what brought you to uh, to our fair city of washington dc and washington uh performing arts Gosh, well, you know, I'm as I mentioned before, I'm a native New Yorker. Mm-hmm. I always thought we would never uh, stray from New York. And then I got a call from Stanford University 
Um, and all of our family at the time was out in California and they were embarking on a new arts initiative and thinking about building a performing arts venue. And they wanted to revolutionize their arts presenter to be much more integrated on campus. And so we just bought our, finally bought our Brooklyn condo. And then two years <laughs> later, we sold our Brooklyn condo. Um, and we uh, packed up our daughter. My husband had been teaching as a part of the faculty at Swarthmore College, mm. uh, also a Beatles authority in addition oh, to okay. Um, and so we lived in Palo Alto for seven years, built the concert hall. And I really missed being able to um, work for a, a, like a, a smaller, more nimble organization working for university, even one of the best universities in the world with abundant resources. Um, it's a big institution. Mm-hmm. And I got a call from uh, someone who was doing the search for the next CEO at Washington Performing Arts. And they said, you know, there's a fantastic new chairman of the board um, who they, they've just gone through a strategic plan. They've put it on hold. They're looking for a new leader. And they want someone who really knows classical music, which has been the backbone mm-hmm. of the organization. But also, you know, they have gospel choirs. They have arts education programs, embassy programs. They want someone who can pull this all together. And I started, you know, digging a little bit more deeply into the organization because I I knew, I mean, everybody knew Washington Performing Arts, but I'd lost track a little bit in the intervening years um, during a leadership change. And what I discovered was this incredible breadth of reach that was both the, the most I mean, some of the most celebrated artists from around the world, it might be the, you know, Berlin Phil or Wynton Marsalis or Yo-Yo Ma, um, artists who were emerging, who whose careers had been launched by Washington Performing Arts, also Wynton Marsalis, <laughs> but Yu Wong. Um, and then you know, commissioning, I had actually written a commission agreement for a Steve Reich piece that was commissioned by Washington Performing Arts mm. back in the day at Boozy. Um, and then this embassy program that brings like 50 embassies and 50 sixth and fifth grade classrooms together for embassy adoption program that like looks at how global cultural diplomacy can be fostered at an early age. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the clincher for me, in addition to all the in-school arts education programs, hundred different schools, all that, the clincher for me was actually the gospel program because while I had worked in cultural diplomacy, I'd worked in arts presenting, um, steeped in classical music um, and arts education. I'm a product of really good arts education um, exposure. I had heard gospel music, as I mentioned, as a kid, but the fact that this organization had two gospel choirs, the only one of its kind in the country, um, just completely like thrilled me. And while I was writing my cover letter over like seven hours, I turned to my husband and said, they have two gospel choirs. Like, how amazing is this? And he said, you really want to do this, don't you? Mm. And so it, it was really this combination across many different styles and genres of music, but also programs at deep commitment to engaging local artists that I felt I could really develop, which I have further with um, specific programs. Um, I also honestly loved the prospect of being in a city that is demographically and culturally changing and evolving at such a rapid pace. The fact that there are so many national cultural institutions in the city, for me, suggested limitless possibility in terms of partnerships and collaborations. And that that's something I'm really passionate about and good at forging. It's one of my one of my strengths is pulling 
disparate people, institutions together and finding the link that makes a compelling program. And I just, I loved, I loved the platform, the opportunity, the city. Um, and so once again, we moved back East with our daughter who was then 13 and two African parrots. Um, and my husband, my husband actually continued, continues to teach a Beatles class. He has for 16 mm. years at Stanford. Now he does it remotely, but teaches at Catholic university and taught at American a little bit, mm. Georgetown. Um, so, you know, we've had this interesting kind of arts family experience in different parts of the country. And our daughter's an actor living in New York. So that completes the cycle. We've gifted another one of us to the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you look at it that way. I know a lot of people who are in the arts who when their kids go into the arts, they go, oh, okay, fine. <laughs> no, I know. You it's know, funny. Yeah. Some, people, some people say to us, so are you worried Hallie's going to be, you know, in the arts? We're like, come on, like, look at us. Right. This is what we do with our lives. <laughs> and you know, the fact that she she grew up from the time she was three being able to sing, you know, a bunch of the songs in Gypsy. Mm-hmm. I consider that like a, a, a victory for our family that she knows okay. every character. And in her um, preschool interview in Brooklyn, she was asked who she wanted to be when she grew up. And she said, Gypsy Rose Lee. So we're like, okay. Oh, wow. Our work is done here. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Hey. That's the best. I'll I'll bet you $1,000. They never heard that before. That's amazing. But the the, the teacher (laughs) who was interviewing her, who reported this to us, sure. Enough about musical theater to laugh. So, right. I was going to say, oh, that's good. Okay, good. And she was good. good. So that was, that was, anyway. So that's what brought us back. A great, organization and it, and it was also a really good thing for our family Hallie could be mm-hmm. more involved in theater here and really grow as a young person um Joel had more performances on the east coast and mm-hmm. more relationships to build and so it was great I've loved all the places we've lived well that's really nice having lived all over a little bit myself I appreciate that part of it having friends and family all over the country is not, is not a bad not a bad way to be uh at all so you've been I mean you've been over uh, uh, Washington Performing Arts for about 10 years now. Is that correct? Just a little over 10 years. And yeah, I mean, that's such a, it's so interesting. You describe, I, I was just ticked to my memory saying working in a university, even one that has as many resources as Stanford, but it doesn't move very quickly. It's not a very nimble organization. And I just had this, you solidified an image for me having, having worked also in universities that it's kind of like, it's like steering a battleship just doesn't, yeah. you know, it's got a lot of power, but that thing does not turn around very fast at all. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't it's change not, direction. Yeah. It's just not possible. I mean, at, at that, mm-hmm. at that scale, but you know, the thing that I loved about Stanford was, was working with the faculty, like mm-hmm. working with some of the smartest people I've ever met in my life who were blue sky thinkers and because of you know the the environment in silicon valley like you have to work together mm-hmm. to make new things and to pull people together in unique ways so the programs we created involved like kinetic sculptures and instruments and multi-dimensional works with film and jazz ensemble and it was it was a really thrilling environment to program in because the the inventor mentality in silicon valley was was very interesting and i'm you know continually grateful for having had that that opportunity because to program in an environment like that where there are resources and the mindset of ooh what can we make next like that that isn't a typical arts presenter experience um and it 
I was there long enough for it to really kindle that, um, to kind of keep the the pilot light on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I tend to move towards things that are creative and new, even if it's a new way of thinking about uh, traditional art forms that, you know, for so many people, we we sort of shrug our shoulders and say, oh, well, you know, it's Beethoven. But so many people have not heard Beethoven. Like mm-hmm. there's no arts education program that leads you to the understanding that Beethoven was a radical and thrilling creator. So many people hearing Beethoven for the first time hear the music at an orchestra, which they're also hearing for the first time. Mm-hmm. Like we can't, live music, live theater, like these are not part of everyone's experience. It, it's a much more rarefied thing. And those of us who are, you know, you're creating, you're creating these um, ways for people to understand and metabolize work. Um, we have to be really vigilant about valuing live experience and the live ex- social experience of being together and not knowing what we're going to see and hear mm-hmm. being excited about that. I think that's really important, even with all the art going on, like going to a club and sitting with someone and looking over and saying, oh my gosh, can you believe that? That was incredible. Mm-hmm. That's extremely important that I, I, that what you just said. I, I think it's a missing component for a lot of not only arts education, but arts programs and in, in, in art in general is the one of the the huge downsides to the 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 sort of modern media tailored exactly to your specifications in the sort of streaming platforms and any other algorithm that just always is just trying to feed you exactly what you want. Right is we are a lot less prepared for something that is outside that experience because we are just not used to seeing, you know, we're not used. And the, 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 the vitriol, it's always shocking to me that it's met with when people have videos online or movie reviews and are just like, you know, I didn't understand this. This wasn't for me at all. It's like, yeah, most, most stuff isn't for you. Like most stuff is for whoever, you know what I mean? Like it's just, it, it's, it, but you're so used now. I think people are unconsciously so used to being fed exactly what at least something that they would recognize why they would enjoy it. You know, they like, Oh, this looks like something I probably will watch. Right. It's insecurity and it's narcissism. I mean, let's mm-hmm. face it. Yeah. You know, it's the inability to live in another person's world or imagine that there would be something you could grow from. And we have to, we have to resist. We have to push yeah. back. It. We had this concert a couple of weeks ago with Andra Schiff that, you know, the, the iconic, pianist and he hasn't been with us in a couple of years because of the pandemic and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And he um, programmed a concert that, and he never shared the music he was going to play because he decides literally a couple hours before what he's going to put together. And these are epic performances that are like two hours long. He was going to talk a little bit through it. So he would introduce every work as a, you know, it's segue to the next. And it's just him and the piano on the stage at Strathmore. And, you know, a number of our patrons called and said, well, you know, what is he going to play? And, you know, we encouraged them to look at his recording library and to make, they could assume that he would play something within that canon. Mm-hmm. We honestly didn't know what he was going to play. And in the lobby, I was talking with um, a friend who's a music professor at GW, and he had some students with him. And he said, you know, I told the students that, like, you go to hear your favorite band, you don't go, be, you know, you think you know what they're going to play. But you go because you you love them and, you know, you'll listen to anything they play. Mm-hmm. And so I, I shared that story in my curtain speech. And, you know, happily, a number of person laughed 
you know, knowingly. Mm -hmm. It's like you're coming to hear your favorite pianist who cares what he plays. Right. Um, so that that kind of money back guarantee thing. Yeah, uh, I mean, it. I sympathize on one level because it's it is theater is expensive, you know, and it is an evening out and you have to get a babysitter and there's a whole aspect to it. So I do understand you don't want to risk too much in like in right. terms of your experience. But I think largely it comes from the fact that we are not prepared as art consumers to not be catered to. And I really right. like that approach that you were just mentioning, this sort of just like, listen, it's going to be what's going to be like we you trust us. We trust this performer right. we've programmed that needs to be enough to get yes. you in the door. It doesn't mean you're going to love it. This is the other thing. It's like, it's fine if you don't. It's fine if it doesn't go exactly the way it's supposed to do. I mean, the dream, I always feel like to go see a show. It's an overstatement to say I get excited when an understudy is going on for somebody to go see a show. I but do. I do get, I do get like, it, it's a different buzz. It's not like I go hoping someone's out, you right. know, but it's the right. like, but when that gift is given to you to meet it on the fact that like, this only happens here. This is the exactly. dream for me of seeing a no fly wicked. You know, you know what a no fly wicked yes. is? Yes. Okay, great, yes. good. Yes. So like the dream of that to me, to be able to like go see a no, like, and that was the night it didn't work. And like, you know, 98% of the people would be like, oh, it didn't go. It's like, yes, but you got to see the one time it didn't go. Isn't right. that amazing <laughs> Like that you got to see that? Exactly. And it's yeah. just such a, it's such a great experience. And you really do. I, I, I really think we do. We need to sort of re-educate people in the sense that like, you're going for that. Like it's a live experience. It's going to be different. It's going to be unusual. Things might go wrong and that's fine. That's part of the deal. Part of it. And you may not love it, but you may, and you may yeah. love it so much. It may completely transform what you're, what you're experiencing. Well, and honestly, you know, I see this on a regular basis. We have, you know, patrons who will say, okay, you know, this orchestra is coming. They're doing this piece by a composer I've never heard of, but I'll, listen to it and then they will be in touch with me afterwards and say you know what I actually I really love that and I was mm -hmm. surprised and my first response is you know thank you for giving it a chance you know what I also want to add is it was 20 minutes of our time and the amount of time we spend on Facebook you know some people you know in the bathtub on the toilet like think about how we spend our time during the day and 20 minutes to experience something new with the possibility of loving it yeah. is like that there's a pretty high proportion as, as you say if you trust the artist you trust the organization you know if Dudamel is conducting the LA Phil you know chances are he's he's going to make a good decision and a calculated decision about what fits programmatically and so I've I've always said you know follow the art like follow the artist because um they'll lead you in unexpected places and I I love I actually crave being thrown into situations where I have no expectation or no, no predisposition to whether mm -hmm. I'm going to like it or not like it. I like that sense of discovery when I'm not sort of positioned into place. I don't read, you know, reviews of a concert beforehand. I just want to go and experience it. And then I read the reviews afterwards to mm -hmm. see if, you know, if I agreed. And again, you know, it, I mean, we don't have the babysitting cost anymore, but, and we, we brought our daughter to everything because she was sure. a, you know, an omnivore. And that did make a difference actually, because we mm -hmm. could just bring her. Um, but I, you know, that's the way you sort of open your ears to new experiences. And, and there have been some things that have been pretty cringy, but 
she and I had to leave at during Miss Saigon oh. because up giggling about the saxophone. There was that saxophone part, and we have this joke between us now about mm-hmm. I can't even remember what the line was, but it was just we we were embarrassing ourselves. And yeah, well, we just I, had to. I, 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 not to put, I've talked about it before, so I'll feel fine in saying, I think the uh, creators were embarrassing themselves actually in that moment more than, than anyone. Cause that song is wild. Uh, but you know, some people love it and that's good and good for them. Yes. <laughs> would be my, yes, I'm glad exactly. everybody could find, you know, love what you love and love it passionately. That's exactly. what I would say, but I'm going to leave art. it at the interval. Right. Exactly. <laughs> that's just how that's going to go probably. Cause again, not everybody has to like everything. It's right. not important that everybody like everything. And in fact, if if they did, it would how boring, you know, how boring would that be? Yeah. Um and yeah. Also the fact that I, I think that one thing that that gets so lost when I talk about uh theater, especially with people, is two people can go see the same show on two even the same night but more often two different nights and have two very very different experiences for oh, yes. a wide variety of reasons because the you know for no other reason than I, my big thing is always like the house is going to be different every night and some houses as you know are just not as responsive as other houses shall we say and when you go in a house and everybody's in and everybody's laughing at all the jokes and everybody's really digging it you have a really great experience even if it's not your thing specifically right you can go see something that's right up your alley and if the house is kind of dead and you're the only one really loving it you sort of you can find yourself sliding in the direction of the of the crowd just because that's the vibe of the room you know it's a really tough experience I had this I had this very funny experience uh, probably about eight years ago. We presented an artist, uh, a pianist. It was a debut. And we encouraged the artist to come up with a very unique program. They presented a couple of kind of traditional recital programs to us. And then it was a program that was um, works, classical works and more contemporary works that referenced bells in some fashion, whether it was church bells mm. or um, whatnot. And it was an incredibly imaginative program. And and I was standing at the top of the aisle saying goodbye to patrons as they were leaving. And one person walked by me and said, that was the most beautiful, magical program I have heard in such a long time. Thank you. Because I introduced, you know, mm-hmm. the process of inviting the artist and talking about the program. You know, thank you for encouraging them to do this creative program. There were works that I'd never heard. I loved. And literally three paces behind them were some uh, equally long-term subscribers. And the husband said, this was one of the worst programs I've ever heard. I don't think I could ever listen to another <laughs> performance by this artist. You know, I appreciated the idea of having them create, but I really would have rather heard a traditional recital. And I thought, you know, it literally just paces behind the same audience, mm-hmm. same section with the keyboard view. And I thought, this is this is why we come together because we mm-hmm. have visceral experiences that we walk out of there and we have to either compliment or rail at the CEO. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, that's um, the, yeah, but it's also the thing of like as, as as we said, I think just just last week when I was talking to Austin Pendleton, like it's good to have a bad review as long as it's a passionate one. Like that's a passionate right. response. So everyone had the both experiences were passionate, yes. just in different directions, and that's great. Like then it affected you in some way because the thing you never want is for someone to go out and go, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, like, apathy. That's yeah. never never great. That never. Yeah, so a a a visceral, a loud bad review is always better than a tepid good one. I think that's a good like you want to inspire feeling in people. Um, 
So what is it that, you know, as Washington performed for people who don't know, sort of we've been talking around a little bit, but what is this sort of been your focus at Washington Performing Arts? What is the the organization and how can people find out what you guys are up to? Oh, sure. So, you know, we have a new website that's launching in another couple of weeks, but if people can't wait, they can go to our, <laughs> our current website, which is in a, a state of, uh, you know, reimagining as it has been for the better part of the year. Very excited about that. So it's WashingtonPerformingArts.org. Um, and this time of the year, we actually have a lot of free performances. We have a, a long collaboration with the U.S. Air Force Band, and they're collaborating with our Children's Gospel Choir for a series of performances on December 9th and 10th at DAR. Um, they're free. And actually, we have this collaboration with the U.S. Air Force Band has enabled us to do so many really big projects, like big productions of works by, you know, Leonard Bernstein, brought in Jamie Bernstein for a production um, collaboration with Christopher Tin, who's done a lot of video game scoring, has won Grammy Awards. So like really big, fabulous productions. Mm-hmm. And this particular performance is like a, a super uh, fun holiday show. And it's it's simulcast and then streamed all over the world to all the different um, uh, army bases around the the world. So our service members, you know, speaking of Hedwig and some of the mm-hmm. bases around the country and John Cameron Mitchell's own personal story as a, I guess, a, a child of a, uh, a member of the army. Mm-hmm. Um, like those sorts of collaborations here are really, really special. But then we, we launch into the season after like the tree lighting at union station and a whole series of other programs launch into some really unique collaborations on the other side of the season, including um well, a U.S. Air Force Band collaboration around the music of Mary Lou Williams and her Zodiac Suite with Aaron D.L. that he was nominated for a Grammy Award for his uh, recording of that. We have two major orchestras coming, with one with Simon Rattle, who hasn't been here in 25 years, mm. more gospel performances, and a big celebration of Dr. Martin Luther King collaboration at the Kennedy Center. So, you know, ranging from jazz to contemporary to orchestral to solo um, gospel. And then we have this Mars Arts DC initiative that brings local artists a lot of visibility through various platforms. So we have a series at Songbird, which is a super awesome space to hear live music um, by Union Market and a collaboration with Franklin Park in the downtown DC bid. So, you know, if if you follow Washington Performing Arts, you'll see music in the grand spaces of our region and music in the most accessible spaces in our region. So families can come and, you know, walk in and then leave if, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. feeling restless or to sort of tuck in and enjoy a whole, uh, a whole concert from start to finish. Um, And that's, that's what I love. I always look forward to this time of the year because we celebrate with, you know, our musicians and then we get to the other side of it and and keep going and planning for next year sure oh yes the never-ending side of the never-ending cycle <laughs> this is tricky because you know we don't we can't we don't have our own venue this is the really unusual mm-hmm. thing about us, is that we don't own or operate a venue so we can use venues all over the city and for our ticketed performances we use about 11 venues but when you start adding the places for events and our mars events and our education events and the gospel events, like it's just dozens and dozens and dozens. So our team has to be like this tactical team that goes in, 
creates the environment for artists to perform and then gets out of there quickly, mm-hmm. um, which is why we can't do theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because theater needs to sit in a space. Right. And, you know, the lighting and all of the staging uh, has different time requirements. But what I love is that, you know, all the money we raise goes to supporting the artists and the team to support the programs. So mm-hmm. it's a very, in that way, it's very lean. We, we're not maintaining a facility or replacing HVAC. Sure. We're putting money into the, to the artists, the programs and the staff. And that feels really good. Sure. No, that sounds absolutely wonderful. Everyone should go go check go to the website, even if it's not new yet, and check it out, yes. and then come back and see the nice new website. Yes. when it's all when it's all. Just check it. Check it every day, guys. Just go every, every day. day. Just check on, every day. What, what's the worst that can happen? Just check, make it your homepage. Um, swinging kind of quickly back into Hedwig uh, before we completely wrap up, uh, I have to ask, what is your favorite song in Hedwig and the Angry Inch? Oh my gosh. This is going to be tough. Yeah, it always is for people. <laughs> the one, the one I listen to perhaps the most frequently is "The Origin of Love." Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, the reason I do is in, in the film, there's this beautiful, beautiful drawing of Yin Yang that mm-hmm. together. And so when I listen to that song, um, I understand it more deeply because of the the visuals and because of the the words. Now there was three sexes, then one that looked like two men glued up back to back. They called the children of the sun. And similar in shape and girth was the children of the earth. They broke out, two girls rolled up in one. And the children of the moon, was like a fork shoved on a spoon. Yeah, I, I think that one, and, and I'd have to say Tear Me Down. Mm. And they're they're just so completely opposite, but there's, yeah. there's vulnerability, mm-hmm. streams of emotion in both of them. And I feel I need that to have the complete Hedwig experience. Sure. And they come right there, back to back, right yes. at the beginning. They hit you. Yeah. You're not yeah. going to, yep. This is what you're getting, folks, right off the jump. Uh yeah, I think those are both those are both excellent excellent choices. If you had to pick one, which one would you which one would you go with? Origin of Love? No, I think Tear Me Down. Oh wow, look at that. Swung it around. I like that. Yeah. It works. Um Jenny, this was wonderful to to talk with you. Thank you so much for for spending the evening with me talking about all the wonderful arts programs you sponsor and Henwick and the Angry Inch. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Well, what is your favorite Hedwig song? Oh, gosh. Look at you. There you did. You turned it around. <laughs> um, you know, I it, it may be Tear Me Down, but I think because I love the beginning. But I will say that, like, each time I listen to this all the way through, Midnight Radio really knocks me out. Oh, yep. Like it's 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 not a song that sort of individually I would think I would pop on, but in the longer piece, yeah, 
the the catharsis of of midnight radio is so beautiful yes. and so perfect it, it really is. just it's such a great way to go out um and also one that makes me kind of go want to hop back to the top again it's a really like i want to start you know let's, let's let's just one more time let's just kick through this thing one more time um yeah it's such a great finale and has a wonderful sort of resonance to it i love it, it so much yeah it good kid jenny thank you so much thank you thank you don't you know me, Kansas City? I'm the new Berlin Wall. Try and turn me down. I was born on the other side of a town written to. I made it over the Great Divide. Well, now I'm coming for you. cast is produced and edited by me patrick flynn please rate and review the original cast on your podcatcher of choice it's the easiest way to help other listeners find the show go to bit.ly slash original cast store for original cast merchandise like t-shirts tote bags and more become a patron of the original cast at patreon.com slash original cast pod so you can listen to our bonus podcast the original cast at the movies on the socials we're at original cast pod Special thanks to our social media manager, Bethany Zalecki. Hi, Bethany. My thanks to Jenny Billfield for coming and talking to me. I'm Patrick Flynn, and I can't. I have rehearsal. Bethany.